Welcome, welcome to another edition of our weekly Friday market updates. Sorry for missing last week. I was in Fargo, North Dakota for a scale, like a scaling conference in terms of how to scale a team, because it's incredible how there's a lot of mega teams out there in the sense of doing 500,000 transactions uh, a year with not as many people as you may think. So I certainly learned a lot. I have a bunch of my uh, team members are doing a lot there, but um, I digress. Let's get into some of the news. We've got a lot of things to cover, a lot of exciting things to cover. And let's start off with the first headline article of the week, which is about Apple. Boom! Apple grabs several Cupertino buildings in mega office deal. Tech Titan buys five Cupertino buildings in one of Silicon Valley's biggest purchase deals of the year. So this is this is very important news because why is that? Generally, it's actually for many different reporting reasons. Um, most companies don't actually tend to buy uh, buildings. They don't actually buy the land or the units itself. And why is that? At the end of the day, they're not uh, real estate you know developers and they're not like real estate uh, landlords typically. Um, they usually lease deals and. And they just kind of, I mean, they're going to have, as you can imagine, if you're you're a, one of these tech giants, you're able to negotiate really, really good leases because of the purchasing power that you have and for the name that will be at that building. However, over the years, what you have seen happening is that there's been bigger and bigger entities that have been buying in these very prime uh, corporate real estate space. And so... Apple, Google, Facebook, LinkedIn, these companies do not want to risk at all the notion of doing all these renovations, making these buildings really nice, and also, quite frankly, losing that corporate campus footprint that they'd already have. Right? So they spent $450 million to purchase five buildings, just five buildings, next in Cupertino. If you, if you add up the total square feet, it looks like about... Uh, 450,000 square feet of office space. Now, these are these are prime office space. So this is for uh, workers, like white collar workers, engineers, developers, and things like that. So they cannot afford to lose any of this space. And so you'll see this probably keep happening with the areas that they feel like, hey, look, there may be some risk of losing this space. Let's buy the buildings itself so that we won't have any issues of having to renegotiate leases especially because these big tech companies know that the corporate campus field is not going anywhere. And so we're going to see a lot of this over the time, because if you think about it, on one end, $450 million is a lot of money. On the other end, it is nothing compared to how much Apple has in the bank. Take a look at their balance sheet. It's quite amazing how much money they have, and they can't even spend it fast enough. And so there'll be these large mega, mega buildings and mega, mega projects you'll be seeing throughout. What's next? Amazon plans to build distribution center in Pleasanton after buying almost 60 acres there. About 800, 800 employees could work from a building that could be 520,000 square feet, depending on what type of center of the e-commerce giant choose to build in the Tri-Valley City. You know, one of the best parts about Dublin, so Dublin and Livermore and Pleasanton, they have lots of space out there. Right. There's tons of space out there. So for a distribution play, um, it makes sense for them to build out there. It's a lot of space, a lot of open land, quite frankly. 
It's not too far from the core Bay Area. Uh, they're also newer, so you might be able to get different infrastructure there that might be applicable. And that's one of the things with Amazon, right? These are not like just storage facilities. There's lots of robots inside, so they need a lot of power uh, to be uh, into the warehouse itself. So they need to work with the city to be able to do these types of projects. But nevertheless, because it's pretty much like a blank slate, it's a great opportunity for those that are having distribution centers, make a play and expand out in that region. So it's, uh, you know, another good news, good thing to see of all the kind of activity that's still happening uh, as we speak. And these big companies are still making their moves. Next, real estate. Choice site in Los Gatos site lands Bay Area buyer. Site of long shuttered auto, auto dealership in Los Gatos is bought. It is going to be interesting to see what, what's going to be happening with the space. It looks like the seller, if anybody still remembers this company, is Long's Drug Stores, a unit of drug stores chain CVS, which bought Long's Drugs back in 2008. So it's kind of amazing. Like one of the things of these old companies that you didn't even know was profitable. Fortunately, they've owned the land, it looks like. And because they own the land, you know, even though the business have sh has shuttered down for a long time, the land has been extremely valuable for other people to do different opportunities with. It's going to be site un unknown at, at the moment, uh, but it's, you know, really good location. I mean, Los Gatos is very, very prime. There is not anything there to even build on. So my guess is probably this gets redeveloped um, into probably redeveloped into just a new commercial site. So I think you'll get some mixed use uh, commercial space that'll be uh, in this location. But good activity to see. Los Gatos does not have a lot of news. Site of long shuttered auto dealership. And, you know, I think a lot of the auto dealerships, I mean, if you look across the Bay Area, you know, the one that had been flattened a long time ago, if those that remember, like there's a, I think it was like a Chevrolet off of 101. Uh, that was there. Um, there was one, I think, next to, uh, I think there's a few. I mean, there's a few that have shuttered all over the Bay Area. And, and, and as you can imagine with that, there's a lot of space there. And they haven't done anything like toxic. So I think the redevelopment of those are going to be pretty common. Uh, and they've always been in pretty good locations too. Maybe next to a highway. So there was maybe some noise. But if it's uh, a commercial space, they don't really care. They want convenience. So don't uh, be so don't be surprised to see a lot of those types of properties being repositioned from you know old auto dealerships into into uh, into commercial spaces. Next, FedEx signs lease for big distribution complex in North San Jose. FedEx aims to open distribution industrial complex in San Jose during 2022. You see a lot of this activity happening in north the northern parts of San Jose because it's been mu much more industrial there. So it's not too difficult for them to convert existing space. They already have a lot of warehouses and a lot of space out in that region. But as a lot of these, uh, as you know, as a lot more shipping and uh, e-commerce continues to play a bigger and bigger percentage, I mean, these companies, whether it's FedEx, UPS, Amazon, these big distributors need to find prime and good locations for them to deliver packages fairly quickly but also for additional hubs. So on one end, you have the loss of maybe brick and mortar. I think recently Bed Bath & Beyond had terrible earnings reports and kind of makes sense as to, you know, they're probably not going to last a whole lot longer. But as those kind of keep waning off, then you have these opportunities 
as warehousing and industrial hubs now spring up to take advantage of it. My guess is that you probably will see some of that activity too of some conversion like of old malls that are not doing well. The mall itself maybe just transitioned into a, a warehouse facility. I know some have already turned into self-storage facilities uh, at the moment, given of how it's set up and its prime location next to you know the interstates. Um, so I suspect that will keep continuing to happen. And um, so don't be surprised that even though there may be vacant space at the moment, there may be other plays, as you can see, with big distributors uh, to take over that space. Next, some of you guys have probably have heard of this Ponzi Playground. Northern California has robbed of millions. I, I brought this up a little bit ago, but it's just something to be mindful of for those that are you know, investors. Um, this is just a, a, a warning sign. Now, it's not not all investments are going to be this way. And you always want to be careful of if things are too good to be true. So, for example, this one, which is Silicon Sage Builders. Um, I don't none of my clients end up buying in, in any of these in, in any of these homes, but this has been a, certainly a big issue. And there's been a lot of fraud of uh, promising these amazing types of returns. So you can look at this from 2016 to 2019. The CEO promised investors life changing. I don't know if they're life changing, but they're pretty high returns of 18 to 23 percent per year on funds invested for projects or 15 percent return per year for funds invested in his bridge fund. Now, I personally invest, so I'm very familiar with what expectations are for just investors. And at the end of the day, there are ranges of of how much returns are, are likely and what are really this kind of just really aggressive. Anytime you think you find things that are really aggressive, you need to think for yourself, what is this really, is this really too good to be true? Or is this maybe something, is there something else going on? Like how can they deliver such high returns? And I'm gonna, I'm gonna take it to, for you to think about it for from a business perspective. And because I invest in like syndications and big projects, I know what they offer and why they offer what they do. And as they grow, you'll, and I'll kind of give you an idea why. So I want to break this down. So you are familiar with, if you're going to invest, be, you know, obviously be careful, but there are red flags if you hear of things too good to be true. So think about your options as an investor, right? You have the opportunity to put in a checking account, right? Which offers you very low interest rates. You have the option to invest in the stock market. Stock market has certainly done well recently. However, over a long period, it's about you know eight percent, seven to eight percent a year for the S and P five hundred. But that's kind of the benchmark that most people try to try to beat. Now, the the stock market is obviously very liquid, um, and there's there's it's very diversified. So there is a, a much higher level of risk when investing in real estate projects. Now, when it comes to real estate projects, though, typically for like a syndication that already has a uh, like apartment complex and things like that, the expected return over five years is about 14 to 15% IRR or internal rate of return. That's a good number that most people are very happy with. Now, why, why doesn't that number potentially go higher or the guarantee goes higher? Number one, they want to be generally good operators, want to be conservative, and then they want you to have a surprise on the upside but they have to give room for a surprise on the upside and there's realistic rooms for the upside. 
At the same time, the reality is this. If you think about a owner, let's say I was taking your money and I was in deployed capital and I say, you know what, I'll, let me, I need to borrow a million bucks. I'll give you 15% or whatever it is. If you're a really good developer, you don't have an issue getting capital right now. And you also don't have an issue returning a lower return of capital, right? Because if I helped you on a project and I helped you make a lot of money, you would probably want to come back and you would probably come back for a lower amount because you have a higher confidence now in me to give you the money back, right? And so actually what happens with these bigger developers, technically the returns of how much they give back should be less. And it is usually less, right? Because they're more established. They also have much more money. If you have a lot of money coming in, you can be more picky. You can be like, you can kind of stack rank it, right? You can be like, uh, well, who's going to be willing to give me money for 10% returns? Come in the money first. Okay. Once that's depleted, who's at 12%? Come in next. So for them to give out that kind of money and 18 to 23% per year shows that they, it was a little bit fishy to begin with. Now, yeah, there are examples of people earning that much, but that shouldn't be kind of what is is going to be the baseline because that's a very, very high baseline. And so I think the writing was on the roll of something, something, some things being too good to be true. And re in recurrence to a bridge fund, that's even worse. 15% is very high. Usually that number is like 10% right now. That's a very good number uh, in terms of real estate projects. So, you know, fortunately, you know, that's the one of the things with these projects, like, they're not public information until now where people are trying to sue them because they have no money left. But um, yeah, this is, this is crazy, right? They owed $40 million to investors and there's $19 left. I apologize for laughing. It obviously sucks for those people that are involved, but you got to do your own diligence, due diligence. I mean, you got to do your own due diligence and things happen, but some of these things are were too good to be true if that was ever anywhere close. So be careful when you're doing investing. There's lots of opportunities and there'll be more of, of these types of fraud because money is plentiful and everybody's kind of chasing deals. And uh, so just be careful when you come into investing in these types of projects and what to expect. You want to you want to do well, but you, you don't want to go for something too crazy because there's a reason for that. It's a much higher level of risk. Um, and in this case, it can go straight to zero. Next. Where home prices are going next, according to forecast models. So um, as you have been tracking of my weekly report, you can see that home prices have continued uh, to go up over a long period. But at the same time, over the last few months, it has actually declined in several different markets. And so, but what is it likely to do moving forward? As you can see, for the next upcoming 12 months, different groups have diff different forecasts, 2.7% appreciation next 12 months. Others have said 4% to 5.3% respectively in 2022. To give you an idea, most places around the country, the average is about 3%. That's the, that's the amount for appreciation for if you're looking at a macro level. In the Bay Area, the, the trend has been about 6 to 7% for like single family homes in the Bay Area over the last four decades. So I suspect us will be higher than this. So what does that mean? Several things happen. This also takes into account already of uh, a higher interest rate, which is likely to rise. But even then, supply and demand imbalance is too high uh, in general. And it's not high because of the lack of people selling. It's high because of the lack of new homes that are actually being built. Take a look for yourself. 
look at all the new construction homes in the Bay Area. What are their low price ranges? Like, what are they starting at, right? The reality is most of the builders are going to be building for more luxury types of properties. They're not going to be building things for, quote, unquote, the masses. Quote, unquote, the masses are going to be those opportunities to be able to buy pre-existing homes. So something to be mindful of, there is a price to pay when it comes to patience. So it really depends on your situation. But the reality is the market has slowed, but it's still likely to increase. There's a difference between slowing down and dropping versus just still increasing just at a slower amount, which is what it is. The last thing I want to point out is kind of the, the topic of co-working spaces um, and the ebbs and flows of this and why this is kind of interesting. And so you're going to see a lot of kind of reports of, oh, this is the demise, this is the end of the world. But what's interesting is this. As a, at a macro level, co-working has been greatly impacted. Sam Zell, which is a famous billionaire, huge real estate mogul, uh, has always said, you know, co-working spaces are the worst business model that there is. Why is that? Because the tenant base usually are those that can easily just work at a coffee shop at Starbucks or work at home if things got bad. And when they got bad, that is exactly what they did, right? They cut bait. They just work, they didn't work at Starbucks, they just worked home, they work anywhere somewhere else in the country, and a lot of the co-working spaces took a huge hit. Now, when they say it's coming back, how what does that mean? Is it really coming back? The funny part about that is a lot of companies have disappeared and, and gone bankrupt, right? They either uh, are gone altogether, or companies like WeWork had to cut a lot of their contracts. So now you have a ton of office space that are opened up. However, the office space market itself is a very, um, it's, it's a very illiquid model, right? Most of those are leases of like five plus years. And so they can't go into the model of co-working, but the, the existing co-working spaces that are still around and still alive, then they can take benefit of, of this, right? They, they are the only players left. So on one end, they shrink a lot. So WeWork's uh, available office space has shrank a lot, but also there's a lot less competitors now because they've also, they're gone, they disappeared. And so as uh, COVID gets better or people have more confidence of, uh, of where they want to be at, then that kind of expands where people gain back in. So I think this is a hybrid conversation, right? On one end, it's it has increased on the other end in the general macro of how things compare to just you know two years ago it is a, it is a shell of itself and we will see what happens we'll see what happens as really the next year comes up this is kind of the beginning anyways right so they tend to be um because nobody's really even being in the office these days so i think we'll see them continue to increase but i just want people to understand like why why this is what it is Okay, of course, this is a live show. So if you have any questions, feel free to reach out anytime. I do answer and address everything. And if you like this show, please be sure to hit that like button, hit subscribe if you're watching it on YouTube, and leave a comment below with any questions or thoughts that you may have. If I'm watching, if I'm seeing this live, I will get to it. If not, I may cover it on the next show. So let's take a look at some of the data and what is going on with the San Francisco Bay Area marketplace. So if you take a look at new listing in San Mateo County, I was not here last week, but we still have some of the data to share with you. The numbers have been pretty consistent just through the months. You know, we are in the fall season, so the fall season tends to have less available than um, 
than the spring season, but there's still plenty to choose from. You can see how a lot has been contingent pending this week. And so what does that mean? It looks like prices have actually increased in September, right? This chart, just for those that are not familiar, it's a it's a week by week comparison. So this was a chart that I think we did in the mid parts of September as a snapshot. And this is a chart that we just did as of basically today. So you can see it has certainly increased um, from the lows of August, but it had a big kind of tumble in terms of prices. I see it given my 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 clients going contingent and pending. Uh, going contingent in, in contract, they will probably see a minor increase. So do not be surprised. Be mindful of that. San Mateo County condos and townhomes. I mean, nothing too crazy. It really depends, quite frankly, on the community, um, but it's very predictable. If you look at what has sold in the last couple of months, it'll probably be what has sold in the last couple of months. Um, there's nothing crazy about it. It's been relatively flat and predictable. Let's take a look at Santa Clara County. Santa Clara County. Uh, much less listings that come on the week, uh, as you can see, versus even just a few weeks prior. A good amount still goes contingent and pending. If you look at the prices, minor decline uh, downwards. Uh, I suspect it'll probably be somewhat similar. So if you look at the last few months of what has sold, it'll probably be just a little bit less than that. So fairly predictable. But single uh, condos and townhomes have actually done very well, continue to be increasing Nothing too crazy, one or two percent uh, over a, over a couple of months, but you'll see it, it's gradually uh, increasing. Alameda County, lots of new listings, but as you can see, in general, less than what we had before, but still a very healthy amount. Five hundred and fifteen new listings a week. Prices have been, I mean, as predictable as you can get it. I mean, look at this; it's just been relatively flat for the last five six months. So anyway, that's uh, not having uh, success in this market. Just you got to compare it to what has sold in the last few months, and then you will you will be making a good offer. Condos and townhomes, very predictable as well, right? As you can see, pretty consistent over the last few months. Let's wrap things up with uh, San Francisco. San Francisco, as you can see, with single family homes have actually declined. I suspect that they will probably decline further. Uh, moving over the next few months. So it might be a good opportunity for those that have wanted to enter in the single family space in San Francisco. Condos and townhomes, been relatively flat. So it's been like this for a while now. I don't suspect there's going to be much of a positive catalyst in San Francisco until um, until really things open up and uh, people kind of return back to the office. But we'll see what happens. Um, but nothing too crazy, as you can see. Um, so if those that wanted to move into that market, I think this is still a, you know, a still a very positive time because you have the combination of one, which is prices have declined. At the same time, interest rates are still very low, but they are expected to increase. So this depends on your time horizon. Um, I've helped a lot of clients actively look and buy in San Francisco recently. And if you have a time horizon of a couple of years, I think you'll be okay. So those are the thoughts of the market. I appreciate you tuning in. I am unfortunately going to be gone again next Friday. Uh, I, I will be going to Dallas. So if anyone's in Dallas or you know of anyone I need to connect with in Dallas, I'm going to be there for a Tom Ferry event uh, from Monday through Thursday. There'll be a conference there in downtown Dallas. So is there anyone you know I should be meeting up with? Let me know. Send me a DM. Send me a message. Love to connect with them. And next Friday, I'm going to be in the Asian Real Estate Association Conference in San Francisco. I'll be getting, hopefully, my little award for being the top 50, which is the area A-list. So I look forward to be on that. But I'll be back the following week. But of course, we'll have some other videos come up. 
And if you have any questions or if you need any help, please reach out anytime. My contact details are below. I look forward to help and enjoy the weekend. Bye now.